There was no red wave, more of a purple surge. Schools are taking phones away from the kids. How mean of them. And testing is racist, or is it? Let's talk about it on today's The Citizen Stewart Show. All right, well, we are back with our fourth episode. Is this our fourth episode, Ravi? I think that's right. Wow. That means we've been at this for a month. Yeah, for a whole month. You've had to deal with me for a whole month now. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, believe me, it only gets it only gets better. Anyways, well, welcome back to our friends and listeners to another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. Before we start, I think I was telling you before we started today. It's been bugging me because every time I see you, I have not. I don't get to see you all the time. We don't live in the same place or whatnot, so we don't always see each other. Um, but for these last couple of weeks, I've seen you on several of these things, and we're spending an hour and an hour and a half together. And I'm looking at you, and I'm like, "This kid looks like somebody. I don't know who this is. Who is this? That that he looks like? I figured it out. I put the link in the chat so you could go take a look." All right, let me look at this. All right, hold on. Oh, Patrick Dempsey. Have you gotten this before? Just this month, actually. Yeah. What was the show he was on? The medical show? I forget. Oh, Grey's Anatomy. It's the best thing I heard today. I'm specifically talking about circa 1987. <laughs> In the movie, Can't Buy Me Love. Even better. Yeah. So anybody listening to this right now, go ahead and Google Can't Buy Me Love. Pull it up and see if it's true that Ravi looks like Patrick Dempsey in that movie. And we'll see. I think you're just buttering me up so you could kick my ass in the debates today. But that's fine. That's great. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, yeah. We do this first, and then now you'll agree with me for the rest of the show. Um, well, let's jump right in. I have, so, I have hope that we're going to agree on a lot of stuff today. Yeah, well, that that's good because our first segment is about hope. What, it, what is something that happened in the last week that makes us hopeful? And I don't know that everybody's going to share this as a hopeful thing, but we were supposed to see we had elections this week. It's the natural thing that happens every couple of years in the United States that proves that we are still good citizens and we have a uh, form of civic life. That actually should continue on because we had a, a fair and free election and we made some choices. Um, the election results were supposed to be much different than they turned out to be. There was supposed to be a so-called red wave, but it turned out it was more like a purple surge. Uh, it feels a little bit more like the country is sick of extremes on both sides and decided to do something more up the middle, uh, at least a little bit more balanced than people thought that the outcomes would be. This was an especially good year for the turnout of young people. And young people, as we know, make the world go round in politics. Uh, they're responsible for a lot of big elections. This wasn't as high as it was in 2018, but it was still a historically high uh, youth turnout. You, typically, it hovers around 20%, and this time it was 27%, uh, which was really great, and they made themselves known and felt. Ravi, let's just talk about the outcome of uh, the most major thing that we do as Americans. You know, the vibes, you know, I come from democratic politics, but, you know, we are a C3 here. So I will do my most measured assessment here, which was I was expecting Democrats to get crushed. The vibes were really bad. The polls were actually pretty spot on about the results, but I think everybody was just talking about how bad this was going to be. And also, historically, the president in power does really poorly in the midterm elections. There are only very few exceptions, and those exceptions usually involve a very popular president like George W. Bush in 2002 in the rally around the flag election. So there was really no precedent for what happened earlier this week. And you're right, young people played a pivotal role. They went for Democrats 63% in the early and absentee vote, and some of the exit polls are showing that in certain critical races, they played a humongous role. So for example, it looks like they went for Fetterman by 70%. It looks like their turnout was higher 
than the national rate in certain critical states like Georgia. So they really made their presence felt. And and you and I have been following some of this data that our friends over at Murmuration and the Walton Foundation put together around Gen Z. It seems like young people, they, they're probably less partisan than the older you know, voters, millennials, boomers, et cetera, but they're no less opinionated or civically aware. They just haven't they don't necessarily love this two-party system. And so when this election came down, they certainly seem to have partisan preferences. Yeah. So I think that's the most hopeful thing for me is the fact that um, there's this group of people who are about to come online. There's 70 million uh, strong in terms of a generation. That's a lot of people. And what they will be bringing to the table is all hopeful for me. For the things that I care about in the world, they're more fluid in their thinking. They, um, they think less in terms of institutions. They're not married to any one way of life, one party one way of thinking. They're going to bring something that's going to, think I think, disrupt and upset all of the institutionalists when they fully come online. I'm super happy about that because I feel like we are stuck and we've been stuck for a long time in our national politics. And nowhere are we more stuck than on the thing I care about most. I care about education. We talk about education all the time. That's our thing because we believe it's what gives everybody kind of like an equal shot to become good citizens, to be have a good life, to own some things, right? And we're getting it so wrong. And so I, I feel so frustrated most of the time because our politics aren't reflecting the seriousness in terms of policies. Like, like we just went through a whole election. This sounds great. It felt very much like Team Blue versus Team Red. But really what came out of this for the issue that we care about? Like for education, what's really coming down the pipe from who won? Like, how did we win anything when it comes to education? What came out of this? Nothing. I, I don't mean to be negative. Like, you know, it's yeah, show. this is hope. But you can you could smuggle some negativity into hope. I, I do. <laughs> I don't know what the policies of either party are when it comes to education and kids. There's some hopeful moments, right? Pre-K expansion in New Mexico. There are some prominent Democrats who who flipped on school choice mm-hmm. issues like Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, Pritzker in Illinois, Hochul in New York, campaign on eliminating the charter school cap. These are all good things. These are, but I wouldn't say these are visionary things, right? They're, they're kind of small uh, steps forward. You know, there obviously were some terrible outcomes. Yeah, you shared this article uh, about the, you know, sort of conservative parental rights groups like the 1776 Project Pack and Moms for Liberty, who are some of these groups who have like the so-called, I'm putting air quotes because this is audio, so people don't know that, uh, parental rights people. And, you know, the, the thing you you put, you said, this was from two days ago, right after the election, it shows a mixed bag. Like these were groups that were ascendant, that had really good records. It looks like their their losses outnumbered their wins, at least as of the day after the election. And so if you, like, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a big fan of their ideology, but I also don't know what replaces it either. I don't know who their opponents are, who won, like, what do they stand for? Yeah, I think that's the big thing, you know, here just in general is like our big win is that fewer crazy people than we thought yes. actually ascended to the top. Like if that's our big win, like like fewer crazy ideas made it through or or you know, chaos making politicians made it through, it's not the same thing for having uh leaders who have coherent policy about how we're going to have the best teachers in front of the kids that need them the most in schools that are well-appointed and well-run, well-operated, with curriculum that makes sense for the kids that are in the building that puts them on track for either college or uh, something that is a good substitute for college. Like, this is the level of seriousness I want to hear. I've I've thought about this a little bit. 
I may have asked you this question already. Let me pitch this question back to you, like see what you think. What are you desirous of a leader that would be good on education, stand up and say, like, what would be their stump that would make you take notice and be like, yeah, you're you're going to get my vote. It's rare to find them. There's some people who are getting closer, right? Like Jared Polis out in Colorado has a lot of great things to say on education. He has limited ability to affect it sometimes, you know, because education is such a local issue. But I would say a couple of things. Number one is the fact that anybody even talking about education is a start. A lot of times they don't want to talk about it, especially within, you know, the progressive circles. The The only thing I hear is more money more protections and not a whole lot more, which money could be used well, right? Mm-hmm. So what I would want is vision and urgency to say, all right, it is a national crime, and we'll talk about how to talk about this achievement gap, opportunity gap later, but it is a national crime uh, the way we educate our young people in this country? And there's a lot of squandered potential on the top end too. So it's not just about, you know, we had this Jessica Levin debate. All kids are not being served well, even the ones that think they're being served. We're not using the education system to create a better society and a better community. So I would want to see urgency. I do think in most places we can invest more, but I would want that investment used to actually uh, further things that work, right? So like, let's get more young teachers into the game. Let's pay them more. Let's give them more flexibility to do the work well. Uh, let's promote the people who are doing extremely well fast. Like, you know, if we have the LeBron James of teaching, let's get them more money, more responsibility, faster within the work. And if you're, you know, the, um, you know, I don't know, like who's a bad basketball player. I, I, I'm not even good and knowledgeable anymore. But if you're, if you're the Ravi Gupta of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> if you're days, Kyrie Irving, Kyrie. there you go. If you're the Kyrie Irving of teaching, <laughs> then you should be treated accordingly too. So I would start with the people element of it. And two is I would loosen up any restrictions about where kids can go. So if you live in one part of town, you should be able to go to the school across town. We shouldn't have these artificial gates about where kids can go. You don't have to force them. Right. Like you've you've done a lot about integration. Right. Like it's some people want it. Some people don't. To me, it's just give people the opportunities and have a diversity of options whenever you have scale. Right. If you're in a place like New York City, you should have a place you can go to learn to become a carpenter. You should have a place you should go to learn advanced sciences. You should have a school you should go to learn, uh, you know, heavy computer science. Right. Especially at the the higher 12 uh, levels. You should have Montessori practices. You should have more. Um, stricter Catholic school like practices, like that diversity of options should be available anywhere with scale. And then we should fix higher ed by stripping universities of their nonprofit status unless they serve needy children. And we should ask them to really examine their endowment practices and actually invest that money in the education of their children instead of in Wall Street in these sort of perpetual motion machines. But I guess that's just a start for me. What about you? I mean, you just hit on a big one for me, which is I, I, think that somebody's got to stand up in some at some point and say that our higher ed business model is all wrong. It's expensive, it's costly, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't turn out the the, the you know, the number of capable people that it should turn out and it leaves a, lot, a bunch of people saddled in kind of like unnecessary debt that's useless to them, right? So, I think that would be a good place to start. Someone to stand up and say I have a vision for and then start filling in the blanks of what a good college system would look like, a good university system. And, you know, it's been kicked around forever. None of this stuff is going to be new. People have talked about the European models before. But I know myself as a student and myself as a parent with kids that are very different from each other, I can't imagine how there's going to be one best system. We need a lot of pathways for kids to get through school and become the thing that they're going to become. My kids want wildly different things 
out of life. And it appears to me, even though they come from the same two parents, they have wildly different kind of, uh, what would you call Mm -hmm. it? Like they're magnetized to some very different pursuits, right? And we're sending them through one door. We're sending all three of my very different kids right now through, well, actually two doors to two different schools. One of those schools, though, is a high school that offers, if you if you want to become a lathe person and do lathe machines or HVAC or any of that, they don't just have good programs for that. They have the ones that actually will get you, you will get hired the, mo- right. the day you graduate from high school. That's how good those programs are. And you'll be making more than some of your friends that are going to college. And at the same time, they have a world-class kind of shop, you know, a world-class kind of uh, um, they build houses while they're still in school. And then they have the academic tracks or whatnot. So you can send a lot of different kids through there. Now, what they don't have, and I don't know what, what a leader could do to put this on the plate. Right now, you and I are engaged in a conversation and we have a couple of people helping us with this conversation right now that are literally doing jobs that nobody is ever going to be counseled to understand how this is done. Yeah, it didn't exist 10 years ago. Yeah, or 20 years ago. No podcast producer when I was in school. Didn't exist. And it's a good job. Yeah, this is a good job. I mean, well, at least for me, it's a good job. And the people that work for me, I don't know about the people that work for you. I actually think they might have a raw deal just a little bit. Um, Not just kidding, Ravi. (laughs) I'm just saying these jobs that we all have that we're doing right now are hidden. They're hidden and they're unseen and they're good and they're different than what we would have been counseled to do in high school. You have a whole staff. I have a whole staff that are doing work in ways in which I never would have thought of. I have an idea on this front, by the way. Let's hear it. The company 3M has some rule where a certain percentage of their products have to come from ideas that were generated in the in the recent term. So basically, they're always pushing themselves to come up with new ideas and new products. Uh, so I pitched a while ago that in the K-12 system, we should do this when it comes to curriculum, that we say 20%, 30% of our curriculum should involve careers and subjects that didn't exist 10 years ago. Hmm. So, And you could you could move it back 10, 20 years or whatever. But like, it, it is kind of weird that in high school, it's the same. I, I talked to you know these their cousins of mine I, was, I saw this weekend in Staten Island, and the food is the same in the public school system. The subjects are the same. They didn't even make sense back when I was there. I wasn't even motivated by it back then, right? So I feel like if we, had to, if we pushed K-12 systems to say, all right, there's this part of the curriculum, which is a blank space every few years that we have to fill with the jobs of the future, you better be damn sure that podcasting producing, for example, would be on there. Maybe VR, AR, things mm-hmm. that are where, mm-hmm. where people are moving in the future. I think that could be really helpful. There's a lot of cynicism around that that line of work because I'm 100% with you. It's where I am. Um, I'm thinking about Chalkbeat and Matt Barnum did multiple swipes at this thing of the jobs of the future is just a cliche that has never been true. Mm. And even everything we're saying that they... They used research to put down what we're saying right now, that like it's never been true, this thing about the jobs of the future. You know, jobs have mostly stayed the same. But what I'd say to Matt is, okay, then tell me, I took uh, algebra, calculus, all these things. I never used any of that stuff, right? Like, why are we forcing kids who are the high achievers to take, there's only one path to be a high achiever in a school, right? If I look at a mechanic, for example, in Staten Island, you know, first of all, they're good jobs. And you could be a small business owner. And there's no path in my high school for that to become a mechanic. And all this time we're, we're spending in earth science and yada, 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 which are like, you could do that. You could be really excited about it, but you don't need that, right? Why don't we give the kids well, more options? I mean, really? I, so Diane, what, here's what Diane Ravitch would say to you about that. 
Um, not to invoke Diane oh, Ravitch boy. on you, but <laughs> yeah, here we go. Yeah, like in her book, uh, "The Death and Life of American Public Schools" or whatever. I don't. I'm going to mess up the title, but she talks in there about you know her nostalgic view of high schools was there was a time when plumbers and car mechanics and everybody else still read Voltaire in high school and still like you know uh, were engaged in things that were beyond kind of like a trade. So you had plumbers and doctors and uh, others that had similar things that they had read, right? Like they they all had a liberal arts education that was pretty robust. And then you became a plumber or something else. Um, so when you say the thing about calculus, I mean, listen, first of all, if you were good at calculus and you did it, you're a pretty bright guy and you've done a lot educationally and you've like created a lot of things. I don't think calculus hurt you in your pursuit. Uh, to no, be who you are. But it didn't, I didn't use it. I didn't even, I was pre-med, I didn't even use it. And so I was, I did advanced chemistry in undergrad. I didn't use calculus. It's just like a weird thing to have as like this step that's expected of you in high school. And I guess my point is, I like, I don't agree with Ravage on a lot. I'm not saying like, shouldn't read, I think Voltaire, we need to really open our eyes to like, all, every teacher thinks the book they read needs to be the book that kids read. This gets back to my city mm-hmm. of these things. There's all sorts of great yeah. literature that's contemporary, right? Like Beowulf, we talked about last time. I was asleep when we read Beowulf in high school. It's, I'm sure somebody likes that book, but I don't remember anybody in my class being excited about that. So I think we can, that's part of the 20%. Maybe the 20% is just books that came out in the past 20 years. So we (laughs) update our curriculum a little bit. So not every kid needs to learn everything and not every subject needs to be taught to kids that are going to be on wildly different paths, but it doesn't matter what you try to teach them. If they are stuck on a screen, if they have their iPhone or their uh, their laptops or whatever, and they're stuck in that and they're not paying attention to what they're supposed to be learning. That's a problem. And we have that arising as an issue now. Um, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal. This school took away smartphones. The kids don't mind. I don't believe that. But that's the title of it. Uh, and it's, <laughs> we took all their cell phones around. They were totally cool with it, guys. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Uh, I it's have more complicated. Yeah, it's more complicated, and I have some of the most phone addicted kids, and I do believe we even talked about a different school for them to go to where kids aren't allowed to have their phones or whatnot, and that was one of the first things that came out of their mouth. Those kids aren't even allowed to have their phones at school. So this is an mm-hmm. interesting topic for me. I, I imagine that you and I are going to land in different places with this. So you're the person that ran schools, understands, I think, more Oh, than I'm I so would. fascinated. So, yeah. Like, you know, you would understand this more than oh, I would you. than as a parent, because as a parent, I'm thinking something totally different than what maybe you would have to deal with every day in school. So what's your take? Yeah, it's so funny. I, I And I do think there are two different things, right? It's like running a school and your relationship to children is like a specialized thing. It's almost like if you're a pediatrician, right? Like I often deal with parents who are like, I'm a parent. I know more than you do. And I'm like, look, like, yes, you do. And like how how you run a house is you know more about that than I do running a school is different, right? And I think from my perspective, I generally am in line with cell phone bans. Like back when I was running schools, I had kids check their cell phones at the door, put them in plastic bags. We'd store them in the office. It has all kinds of beneficial effects. Number one, you don't have to worry about stolen cell phones, which is a huge deal in schools. Two is obviously the sort of attention issues that you have in schools. Three is the bullying and all sorts of other kinds of things that can happen in a school and kinds of communications that you have to be aware of. Like if you've ever had to run an investigation into bullying or anything like that, it is a nightmare 
when cell phones are involved because there's all sorts of privacy issues, legal issues that you have to deal with. And then you wind up discovering other things on the cell phones that you then have to worry about talking to parents and you have to like basically become, I'm a lawyer, but most educators are not. And even I was confused at times before we implemented our policies about what we were allowed to do or not. But what I like about what the school did, they went further than I would, but they, this is a, a boarding school in Massachusetts. They did give the kids like a low grade cell phone device, which I think solves one critique, which is what if there's a shooting and all that kind of stuff. And at least the kids have an ability to call their parents or whatever on those cell phones. But I'm I'm for this generally. I was expecting you to be too. So so drop it on me. Where are you on this? You know, I mean, I don't think that you teach people how to self-regulate by just removing the thing that they need to self-regulate against. So I think in one way, there's a, this is efficient. It's quick. You just take the phones out of the game and you don't have to worry about certain set of behaviors or whatnot. So the thing goes away that you you care about. Like... We don't want kids looking in their phones. We don't want online drama. We don't want kids like getting into fights because they said something on Facebook. We don't want what you just said, stolen phones. Um, I get it. Uh, so let's take away the phones. Imagine if you govern society that way, just like instead of like trying to change behaviors or teach people to self-regulate and be good kind of autonomous individuals and beings, we just like took everything out of it. So you know, marshmallows are bad for you. So we're just going to outlaw marshmallows. We don't have marshmallows anymore. We're not going right. to teach you that you can't eat 89 of them <laughs> on your couch at night. Like I might do if I had a bag of them in my house, we're just going to like outlaw marshmallows. Right. I get it. As an administrator for efficiency's sake, you just take the game, you take them out of the game. And it sounds like it didn't create like the problem that I think would exist if it happened at my kid's school. Like they gave them dumb phones and people griped about it in the beginning, but then it became okay. Like maybe, <laughs> I can't see that really working at our school. And we want our kids to be connected to us through their phones for different reasons. I just think it's our job and the school's job to teach good behavior on a lot of things. And this is, this is true of a lot of different areas of schooling. Like we don't teach kids how to ride a school bus. We just put them on a school bus, right? We don't teach kids yeah. how to eat lunch. Don't get me started. We just throw them in the in the lunchroom, right? And you go to lunchroom, kids don't know how to eat lunch. You you go at the end of the day, there's so much wasted food, whole things of an unopened milk in the trash, just like stuff everywhere. It just looks like the Lord of the Flies in a lot of the, the schools that you're in and whatnot. We just don't teach kids how to do school, how to do buses, how to do lunch. Good schools do this well. So like I've seen, for instance, Julie Jackson run her uh, student orientation where they have like a whole way that they do lunch in their elementary school. I think that's really awesome. I saw, I borrowed this practice from Kip Lynn up in Massachusetts where Josh Zoya, who was the head of Kip Lynn back then, I don't know if you know him, he was, he, he used to run as part of the student orientation, how to treat the bathroom, right? So he would bring students in in groups and he would say, this is how you take the paper towel out. These are middle schoolers. We all know that middle school bathrooms are some of the worst hellscapes in all of America. He would grab a paper towel and say, this is how you do. Don't splash the, the mirror. Throw it away. And what I really loved about the way he did it is I'm always about uh, purpose over power uh, mm. is what mm -hmm. I think Doug Lamov mm -hmm. calls it, which is always explain why it is in a way that's not just because I'm the boss, right? So the way we would explain it is you are going to be in this bathroom at 2 p.m., on a Thursday, and you want it to be like a, a space that is usable. And in order to do that, you need to take these steps out, out of respect to your classmates. And if they have the same courtesy to you, then it, it'll be a place you will 
you you won't be afraid to enter, right? So I like that, but I do think there are limits, right? Like for instance, self-regulation, I totally agree. And I think there's probably a staging of it, but there's a reason why I wouldn't put a McDonald's, for instance, in a middle school. It's like, there are only, I want to create the conditions for success for kids. And I want to channel student self-discipline to the things that the school is is most interested in at a given time. And sometimes that self-regulation of the phone is, and I would actually like teach that. I would make that part of the curriculum. But sometimes it's like, hey, we just need all kids with their butts and seats having a good discussion on literature, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, and you mentioned Doug LaMov in there. So Doug, Doug also has a piece that he did for Education Next called Take Away Their Cell Phones, Rewire Schools. And in it, he's talking about there was, you know, alongside the regular pandemic, there was also kind of like an internet epidemic. In 2020, uh, March 2020, he says everything that competed with smartphone, smartphones disappeared. And during that time, like the, the media usage of teenagers doubled between 2006 and 2016, I think is, is he's saying it doubled. And that's across lines of gender and race and class. It's not one kind of people that suddenly became kind of like, you know, um, Snapchat addicts and, and, you know, social media addicts or whatnot, which is kind of interesting to think about, too, in our lifetime. Like 2006 was a very different year than we are today in terms of. Mm-hmm. any of these things being useful like like a, in you yeah. know, the early day like the myspace days or whatnot this wouldn't even been any kind of conversation really like you know right um r.i.p to to myspace and my friends who are still there <laughs> um who might be going back given the the twitter situation but this yeah, is oh part God. of kind of what almost feels like i don't know what you think about this but the doug lamov thing almost feels paternalistic in a way um old school i know he's relying on some of the jonathan hate research around how much social media has had an impact on young people in the way that they engage in the world, how long they can sustain thought, what they think is important. There is this thing I recently saw about TikTok. The Chinese version of TikTok, if you are under a certain age in China and you are using TikTok every day, it is only giving you a certain set of content that actually is about science and space and being a good citizen and all this stuff. And the average user of TikTok, by the time that they age out of the kid TikTok, uh, is a much more educated kid. What they're feeding Americans is like, you know, (laughs) stupid challenges that make kids hurt themselves and do crazy things and misinformation and a lot of dances and, you know, makeup videos. And now the number one thing that kids want to be are influencers. Um, when you ask them like, so, so the jobs that they used to say that were so important are like that we would normally want, I want to be a cowboy was like big, you know, for maybe, you know, the the fifties, <laughs> you know, I want to be a fireman was big, maybe in the sixties and the seventies today is I want to be Kim Kardashian. So I think Doug and others are saying we need to get serious again about teaching kids to be serious about life. And one way is to get rid of their addiction to not just phones, but social media. Again, I still yeah. feel, I go back I'm to with the marshmallow thing. So yeah, I get their research yeah. around it, but I have kids and I know, first of all, I know that every generation does this. Every generation freaks out about something. My parents uh, would have freaked out about punk rock stuff and, you know, turned out the best generation of Americans there's ever been, Generation X. I mean, everybody else fails in comparison, right? So I mean, we gave you Nirvana and punk rock and all the things you are like buying at Target now today. Our parents freaked out about all of it. Oh, my God. This is the end but of I the do, world. Yeah, but the difference between this and some of the other ones is we are all affected by this. I am addicted to my phone. I imagine you probably like like any human being like have an unhealthy relationship at times with your phone. 
there's nobody I know who doesn't go through this. So part of this is this gets at the paternalism. I wish I went to a place every day that had certain rules around how this stuff works. I actually I show up to an office every day and I put my phone in a little a glass box for four hours while I work in the morning and I can't get it out of the box. And so I self obviously and that's self-regulation. So that's my that's my thing to do. Right. But if I were running a household and I imagine a lot of parents do this, it's like we're at the dinner table, put your phone away. Right. And and in the end, Doug actually advocates for some version of this. He, he's not on the extreme end, I think, of what this school was. I think he, he in the end advocates for kids putting their cell phones away in their bags or something during class and they can't use it during class, which is to me is so reasonable. It's like. That of course you can't have kids with cell phones in their hands while you're trying to teach a math lesson. Like that's that's not creating the conditions for success. And when you know the word paternalism is used, but I would just look this up. Paternalism is, according to the internet, the policy or practice on the part of people in positions of authority of restricting the freedom and responsibilities of those subordinates to them in the subordinates' supposed best interests. So I'm like, yeah, that's schools. Like a first grader is inherently restricting their freedom. You can't walk out the door and go to McDonald's as a first grader, like in the end, like there's certain restrictions on your freedoms and, and a school has to decide what those are. You shouldn't get drunk with power on it. And I don't get that sense from Doug that he's like, yes, it's my kingdom of first graders. I get to rule over. It's more like, hey, like how do we, how do we educate these kids best? So, you know, I'll move off of this topic, but what I will say is <laughs> I do think that there's, I do think that there's something still to getting to the heart of a problem by teaching the behavior that you want rather than taking away the tools that facilitate that behavior. So one of the things yeah. that Doug is talking about, he says, there's this idea known as neuroplasticity. The more time young people spend in constant half-attentive tasks switching, um, the harder it becomes for them to maintain the capacity for sustained periods of intense concentration. That's a problem. I get that. The ability to do deep work, to stay focused on a thing and complete a task that is the discrete problem of all of this. The phone isn't the problem, right? The phone is like, if you could have a phone and still be able to uh, do deep work on specific tasks for rigorous amounts of time, then that means that the phone isn't really kind of the issue. Like if you were walking around with a book all day long in your hand and you just kept reading everywhere you went a book, um, no one would think any bad thing about that about you. Now, if, now imagine you're walking around, you're reading that book on a Kindle all day long, which I do at times in public. Now people are judging you, right? And it's like, don't judge me. I'm getting smarter than you right now. I'm better than you are right now. <laughs> no, you don't really think that. But there is this thing around. Is that what you think? Like, you get that uh, well, sense of superiority. You're like in the CVS line. No, you know how I feel yeah, superior that's yes. I feel superior to. The, I feel superior to the people who are like, oh, no, I have to have a physical book in my hand. I love the touch of the pages and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, good for you. I've got a thousand books in my pocket right now. I can look up almost anything. So good luck with your, oh, I need to touch the pages. It's so precious. Anyways, stop it. This is a, this is a, very, this is a very cute beef you've got between you and the physical book crowd. It's like... You know what? Listen, don't get me started because now, now you did get me started. There's a such thing as sustainable reading. You're walking around proud of the fact that you've got you've cut down a million trees for your 80 books that you want to be proud of that you can write in and all that. Like I said, I've got a thousand books in my Kindle and I'm walking around with them all the time. And not a single tree is dead. Speaking of books, let's talk about what we hate. <laughs> what makes us mad? So in this segment, what makes us mad? It's not what we hate, because we don't hate anything or anybody. We love everybody on this podcast. We're like just good beings that way. But things do make us mad, and this is one of them. 
there's this eternal talking point about testing and third-party assessments for students in schools, and it goes like this. Testing was started by eugenicists who actually were doing it for nefarious purposes. They were anti-Semitic, anti-Black, and they were actually devising tests to carry out their kind of anti-Semitic and anti-Black social engineering. And because that's where some testing started, uh, that's what they are today. So when your kid takes a third grade reading test or an eighth grade reading test once annually for their state, it's because they're really anti-Semitic people in the world that want to eugenicize them out of existence. So I, this popped up for me. It came in, in, my, in my Twitter feed. People that I respect were passing around something. Why aren't we talking about eugenics in school assessments? This was from the Learning Policy Center. Um, and they were basically saying that standardized testing started in the eugenics movement years ago. And uh, what that means today is that we are still using tools of white supremacy in our schools, testing being one of them. Right. This does make me mad. Right. It's an internal <laughs> talking point that doesn't die. Like this is, this is something yeah. people would have said to you in 2000, and they would have said it to you in 2010, and they're saying it to you today. The only difference is it can't come at a worse time now. Third-party assessments is how we yeah. know where kids are in the system. Right now, after two or three years of them being lost and having a lost generation of kids, I can't think of a worse time to put suspicion on the tools that we have to let us know how kids are doing. Yeah, you're right. And serious people traffic in these ideas. I was just looking this up. So the New School Venture Fund's Erin Harless, who's the manager of research and learning, wrote a post where she traffics in these ideas and, and talks. She quotes Ibram Kendi, who's, I think, the one of the big intellectual pillars of this testing is racist idea. And and I, I know that there are gatherings, they they have either him or people like him speak and all that. And I think it's you know, I'm not I don't hate Kendi as a person. I just think his ideas can be sometimes destructive for K twelve schools. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, so if if these tests are so racist, let me look up my state's tests, Chris. So I pulled them up. And I just pulled up the third grade reading test in New York, and this mm -hmm, is the passage mm -hmm. that comes up. <clears throat> Kids in third grade are asked to read the passage, a passage from the essay Saving the Birds by James Baldwin. So somehow I'm, I'm led to believe that reading a passage by James Baldwin and then answering one question about it is racist. Now, when I read when I read Kendi on this, he wrote this 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 piece called Why the Achievement Gap is a Racist Ideas. And uh, he talk he talks about how oh all these well intentioned people who are like can can believe in these tests like they need to open their eyes and 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 accept the possibility that they're being duped into being racist. I'm like, well, right back at you, buddy. Like if you don't think a kid can read a Baldwin passage and answer a question, and that that's too much to ask of anybody, then maybe you're trafficking in racist ideas. Maybe you've been duped. <laughs> that was pretty, that was pretty, that was violence. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was pretty intense. I'm you serious. me for a second there, Robbie. Well, Chris, let me, re let me read you something here for a second, all right? Yeah. Let me read this to you. He goes, uh, what if different environments, this is from How to Be Anti-Racist. He says, what if different environments lead to different kinds of achievement rather than different levels of achievement? What if the intellect of a low-testing black child in a poor black school is different from and not inferior to the intellect of a testing white child in a rich white school? What if we measured intelligence by how knowledgeable individuals are about their own environments? What if we measured intellect by an individual's desire to know? Their desire to know. What does that test look like? Hey, you know, Chris, uh, how much do you want to learn today? I want to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. 
Chris, mm-hmm. A plus. Done. Mm-hmm. What does that mm-hmm. look like? Tell me. I mean, this is so ridiculous, though, in some ways, because this is how unserious we are in our society. Uh, Kendi is a historian. He's not a psychometrician. So it'd actually be like asking like your dentist about, you know, your feet. Like, why, why would we be having people who, <laughs> who engaging in this conversation who don't know what they're talking about? There's some fallacies. There's some problems here. The idea that because something started in a eugenics movement, which it didn't, standardized yes. testing actually is like 2,500 years old, started in China, of all places, with one of the oldest forms of kind of uh, meritocracy, you know, going back many years back and in, in centuries ago. So to locate the beginning of standardized testing in the eugenics, uh, eugenics movement is stupid. It's just actually, it's, it's ahistorical. And he's a historian, so that should be your first sign that this shouldn't be your dude like when you're talking about this particular issue. The second sign is there's something called a genetic fallacy. And I think, you know, you're the attorney here, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the genetic fallacy is like thinking that just because something starts one place, it's in the same place, right? So actually standardized yep. testing, whatever, wherever it started, it's a totally different animal today. The people who create the test that your children are taking today, lots of people in color involved, lots of educators involved, lots of gut checking and changing and refining from year to year when things are brought to their attention about a passage being, for instance, you know, um, culturally incompetent or whatnot. Those things are revised, 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 revised constantly. So to pretend that testing today that your kid is taking is the same thing as it's a good intellectual trick. Uh, It's a good parlor trick for an intellectual who wants to make a point. It's really bad advice for our parents. So just like you just pulled this up and you gave me this passage, I want every parent or anybody who's listening to this, pull it up in your own state. They published the sample test and you should only have one question. Look at it, read it and go, should my third grader know this or should my third grader not know this? Is it aligned to the state standards? Do we have state standards? What are the state standards? Who designed the state standards? Why do state standards exist? There's just a series, like if you want to be a good citizen and you don't want to be a dupe, you don't want to be duped with dumb dumb arguments and dumb conjecture about things, and you really do want the best for your kids, actually just educate yourself on who's saying what and why they're saying it. Like, good Lord, go look at the test for yourself. You just mentioned, so James Baldwin is yeah. part of a eugenics plot to like you know like mm-hmm. what to do it's what? a sophisticated plot it's a sophisticated, <laughs> it's <super> sophisticated. Plot, <laughs> <laughs> well well this gets so what they will say the critics of testing is well this doesn't evaluate the whole child and it's like a it's it's an imperfect way of measuring what kids should know and i'm like yeah everything is imperfect right so if you want to tackle diabetes for instance like we all know there's racial disparities in health outcomes, like if we want to solve those health outcomes, it's like one thing you need to do is give blood tests to know whether kids have diabetes or not. If those mm-hmm. blood tests come back and say, hey, we've got more diabetes in this population than that population, that's not the same as saying that the people are genetically inclined to do that. It's saying, hey, something's going on here where maybe we aren't giving kids access to enough health care. We're not expanding Medicaid in the ways that we need to. It's the opposite of racism. So when people talk about like, oh, hey, the acknowledging achievement gap, and we could call it the opportunity gap. I don't really care what we call it, but acknowledging that there are learning differences by populations is a reason why civil rights groups support testing. It's because it is one important measure. It is not the only measure, but it's an important measure to say, hey, are we? what are we doing as a society? And if the data comes back wrong, it's not to say there's differences innately between races. It's saying we as a society are treating people differently and we need to allocate resources better. Yeah. I feel like I have some basic truths on that like 
You just hit on one. First of all, it takes a lot of blood tests to create a normative range. So you need to do lots of blood tests to figure out what a normative range is. And that's why my individual kid taking a test is actually important to the larger scheme of our society too. It's not just about my kid taking a test. It's actually good for everybody to be in the pool of test takers so that we can know when we have kids that are on the fringes in any direction. That makes a lot of sense to me. There's some other things that I think are just like really solidly important to, to understand with this whole kind of eugenics argument. In civil rights cases, you pull test scores because you want to be able to find the uh, inefficiencies or find the inequities in a system. So if I was going to sue the state of Minnesota for inadequate funding, I would pull the test scores first. All my attorneys mm-hmm. would. If I wanted to uh, uh, sue my state because I thought that metro-wide integration was the way to go and that segregation was hurting kids, I would pull the test scores between the cities and the suburban areas or whatnot. Now, imagine if someone erased that data. Now, imagine somebody erased yep. that data. Oh, and by the way, let's, let's erase some other data because you know what? Blood pressure tests don't tell us everything we need to know about people. So why don't we just stop doing that too? Right. And just have people having heart attacks left and right and having all those people who are having (laughs) heart attacks be only of certain races. But we wouldn't be able to see it because we, you know, because, listen, I am not defined by my blood pressure test. As a matter of fact, I think the person who devised the blood pressure test is racist. So I think we should get get away from even taking those. Yeah. You get something really important, which is what I say to a lot of these critics of these tests, which is the racists don't want the data. Right. You talk about the civil rights cases. What do they want? If you're a true racist, you don't want that data to exist. And so this is where I get it back to the Kennys and all that who are like, maybe you're being duped by like some kind of racist who want to implement these tests. I'm like, it's the other way around, buddy. Like the the racists don't want these tests. Uh, they don't want the data because the data is inconvenient to their narrative. It's yeah. the opposite of what they're saying. I think it's like Superman had this issue, one issue of Superman. So yeah, I go into wild places. Um, like this one issue of Superman yeah. <laughs> where it was like the dark Superman, right? Like he wore black or something for the for several issues or something. Or maybe that was Spider-Man. Where the world was just <laughs> the opposite of the regular world or whatnot. So listen to this quote. Mm-hmm. From oh, I know this what you're talking about. Me, yeah. This makes me feel like I'm living in an alternative universe. He says, our faith in standardized tests causes us to believe that the racial gap in test scores means something is wrong with black test takers and not the tests. And I feel like I'm in an alternative universe because it's like, no, no, dummy. (laughs) The tests don't say that. The outcomes just say what they say. And you you pull that from the meaning if you want to. But the tests literally tell us that whole groups of kids are actually achieving less when it comes to standards than another group of kids. And you get to fill in the blanks however you want to figure out what the problem is. But it just tells you what it tells you. That's it. It just tells you that when it comes to proficiency, which is a very low bar, let's stick with this for a second. Proficiency is yes. a hella low bar, right? It's like to so hit proficiency, low. It's, it's ridiculous. It's so low, yeah. right? So when I tell you that only you know 20% of a group of kids are proficient, proficient in something, and the proficiency is already a very low bar. All that tells you is what it tells you. It doesn't tell you to blame the test or blame the kid or blame whatever, but you better figure out what the what the problem is, right? Like, yeah. like we have so many states where the kids are are basic or approaching basic or almost basic or almost all these things that don't mean proficiency. And that should scare the hell out of us. I don't care what reason there is behind it, like whether it's racism or whatever else. 
You should want to know that. These people, it's always the fancy people, right? Like, I don't know if Ibram Kendi has kids or something, but if his <laughs> third grader came home and was like, my kid, and couldn't read a James, that Bal- James Baldwin passage that I talked about and couldn't answer a question about it, he would be concerned. And this is what this is the truth about a lot of these people who are pushing. This was the opt out movement with Common Core and all that. Like the people who could take for granted that their kids can do this stuff are the ones who want to get rid of it. And like you said, in order to create that that distribution of data, we need everybody in on this because we need to know what that kid in Scarsdale is learning relative to the kid in Harlem. You know, opting out is a way of sabotaging the data and the information in a way that doesn't serve any social justice purpose. And what I, I'll be very firm on saying this. Before NCLB, uh, we did not disaggregate no child left by behind. race. No yeah. child left behind. Before No Child Left Behind, we did not disaggregate the data by race and by class in the way that we did after NCLB. So a whole bunch of things were shown to us that hadn't been visible before. When you mix all the kids together and you don't have any data that's disaggregated that allows you to see the differences in what kids are doing, you can just swim along and think, oh, this system's great. It's mostly great. You know, you just average out the bad kids' uh, scores, like the kids' scores that that are, are like really low performing. You just average them out. And now for years and years and years and decades and decades and decades, you have uh, poor kids and kids of color actually not getting any of the attention that they need, like to get better schooling, because you can't even see the data. And now we have people that want to go back to that. And it's really crazy for it to be people like Kendi, who are all about the social justice and the racial justice or whatnot, who pitch these really counterproductive, I don't know, like ideas. I don't know what to think of it. Yeah, They're not very smart. Yeah. Listen, I know we, uh, <laughs> we got through some things that we were hopeful about. We got through some things that you know uh, made us mad and whatever. There was one thing that we kind of left on the table that I maybe wanted to roll back to just for a quick second and see, you know, like uh, if you have some thoughts about it. But we talked about the the outcomes of the last election um, and that the Gen Z was the big story in that. But also there was these other kind of subplots that we didn't touch on. Like, was it good for people who've been pushing parental rights as as their main issue? And was it good for people who push school choice? And there has been a couple of articles that have come out to say, yes, like this was good for school choice or this was good for parent, parental rights. I feel like it's advocacy overreach. I feel like if you're a person that like cares about either of those two issues, you're always going to look for the yeah, this was the year of the parent or this was the this was the year of school mm-hmm. choice. And to be very honest with you, I think both of those things are advocacy overreach as an outcome. And I think what we would be do better to do is pay attention to our, the questions we did ask in this podcast of what what came out of this that was good for education, like in getting kids a more solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, well-taught classroom with great curriculum, great teachers, great assessments, whatnot. But I wanted to circle back in case you had any thoughts or ideas as you're the political person who would pay attention to these things. Like there were these packs, like the 1776 pack that was all about Moms for Liberty and other groups, you know, making it the year of the parent. Did you feel like that came through? Did you feel like one side lost on that issue and another side won on that issue or on school choice? There's way more. Yeah, my sense is there's way more data needed here. For example, the USA Today piece that I'd quoted earlier about the Moms for Liberty or 1776 or whatever talks about their record after the election day. What we need to know is who those candidates lost to. They could have lost to more mm-hmm. extreme candidates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we have no idea. Some of these places like, mm-hmm. you know, shout out to Bentonville, Arkansas. We know some people down there, but I have no idea who the Moms for Liberty parent lost to in Bentonville. 
right? So mm-hmm. I, I, we would have to, there have to be a study on that, you know, Matt Barnum or whoever, if you're listening, like somebody should get on this and take a look at it. And then we could say, all right, was the record good or not? I, I am inclined to want to believe, for example, that Democrats are getting better on school choice. So therefore I am primed for that narrative. But do I know for sure? Right. Those are some promising examples. J.B. Pritzker, Shapiro, those are I wouldn't have expected that kind of stuff. But do I know how much worse Newsom has gotten over the past few years on school choice issues? Or do I I know how much worse, you know, that the governor of Oregon is who just won compared to who she's replacing? I have no idea. So we have to compare this. We don't even know the Carrie Lake, for example, like the, the results of Carrie Lake in Arizona yet. So there's just so much left to be said, I guess is my point. And I don't want to, there's a confirmation bias. I know what I want to believe, but I don't know what the data says yet. Well, I'm right there with you. I think in future shows, we're going to be able to keep talking about how this all plays out and like what's happening for American kids. I love doing this show because more than anything else, I love talking about education and the politics of education that are getting in the way of our kids actually just succeeding and having what they need. I always have the same feeling when we talk about these issues, which is that there's what the world is talking about, and then there's what's really important for kids in their schools, and those things are different uh, oftentimes. All the stuff around Moms for Liberty and eugenics and testing and all of those kind of issues that rise to the top that feel really like pop culture type of discussions about education, they're actually not the meat of what we need for our kids. Our kids need great teachers. They need classrooms that are fully appointed. They need educational learning environments that have coherent kind of education philosophies. Like uh, their curriculum needs to be good. Their assessments need to be good. Their, Their superintendents and their district leaders need to be great. Their principals. And we don't have a focus on this right now. I wish there was a governor somewhere who's, who would say, that's my whole platform. Mm-hmm. My whole platform is making sure that all the systems get the best adults before the kids that we need and that they all get the tools. And oh, by the way, it'd be nice if they had clean water and food to eat and, <laughs> uh, and they were warm and they had safe homes and they had at least one adult in the life that told them that they loved them on a regular basis. These would all be great things. As a matter of fact, I'm going to push for that law. Like every kid must have one mm-hmm. adult tell them they love them, you know, uh, at least once a day. And um, actually, you should write that for me. You're an attorney, Ravi. I think you should write. You this want me to write that into law? Yeah, done. I think you should write it into law, and we should just get it to all our people, and um, uh, we should push for that. So, thank you for another great episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. I really appreciated uh, the conversation today. For the people listening and watching, we really appreciate you for giving us your time. Uh, I'm a happy and proud member of the Lost Debate Network. I would encourage you to check out all the shows on the Lost Debate Network. But specifically for this one, could you please, uh, if you like the show, share it with a friend, subscribe to it. And if you really liked it, leave a, a comment that says that you really enjoyed the show and appreciate it. We will see you again, or you'll hear from us again next week for another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. Thank you. 